This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast. It's another game week preview podcast here on the HTC pod. As uh, I'm Stephen Igo, the host of this podcast and also the host of uh, or the publisher of HoistTheColors.net. And joining us as our guest co-host this week, he is a familiar guest uh, on this podcast as well as uh, a contributor uh, this fall for HoistTheColors.net. He is Brett Hickman, the head coach at West Brunswick High School. Brett. Uh, welcome back into the program. Steven, I'm glad you're feeling better, man. Good to be back. I've been uh, daddy daycare today on Veterans Day. We just served our kindergartner, little veggie straws and eggos for lunch. So, you know, it's good to, good to get a day off. It's been crazy the last couple of weeks with the end of our first quarter and, um, you know, getting football kind of ramped back up as we prepare for the spring. So I apologize to the uh, – viewers of your site i hadn't been quite as visible the last couple of weeks but good to talk pirate football hey real life is uh is pretty important to take care of obviously first and foremost so uh we definitely respect you for that and um i don't know if anybody really wanted to see any true breakdowns of the two lane game after how bad it went this past saturday but maybe so uh, we'll, we'll get into that first we'll obviously talk a lot of cincinnati east carolina we got some questions to answer as well uh, Brett, but just kind of wanted to get your take. I've already get, give, given mine. Uh, a lot of fans have given theirs. Uh, 38-21 loss to Tulane. What did you see in that game uh, maybe that disappointed you? Or, or, or what, what What should Pirate fans take from that game? I think a young team is always kind of trying to figure out the emotional edge of football. You know, I can remember a couple of times when I was in school, 2007, maybe we went to UTEP and won just a, a, a wild game, um, you know, and really tied the game on a late Hail Mary. And the next week, you know, you get the, you get the long trip overnight. You don't get in, you don't see daylight until you're pulling into the airport in Greenmore or Kenton or whatever it is the next week. And then the next week we just came out and play really flat against NC state. And I realized the Tulsa game was on a Friday night, but you still kind of had the late turnaround. You, you get screwed. Um, and I'm not making excuses for the kids. I just, the, the, the team that you had seen with the emotional edge against South Florida and then even against Navy and, um, trying to remember my missing a game in there other than Tulsa, but it, that team, they played with an emotional edge, those three games that come to my mind, and they just didn't have it uh, last Saturday for a variety of reasons, whether or not it's fatigue or whether or not it's preparation problems or I think Tulane's actually a pretty good football team. I think they're really good where East Carolina's not yet. Um, 
eating the pushed them around at the line of scrimmage, the offensive line. That was that was closer to what you saw at not that bad as it was at Georgia State. But um, you know, that's the second worst they've played all year, in my opinion. Just failure to establish any type of a running game and and you know, the ability for Tulane to get get a pass rush with with really a having without having to bring anything exotic. So um, you know, that's kind of what came into my mind. I thought the defense kind of took a step back. Yeah, you know, I don't think they – I think they played unbelievable the first half at Tulsa. And then Tulsa found some things in the second half. And, and the dam kind of broke on them in the second quarter of the two-lane game into the second half. And whether or not they got caught in some wrong blitzes or um, – you know, the one thing with what East Carolina is doing up front with all the movements and the slants, when you get an offensive line that can actually handle that and handle the movement, you end up getting washed and the gaps become a little bit wider. And I thought that happened. And then you had a couple breakdowns in the secondary. And then as a result, you know, in the second quarter, I, I thought when East Carolina went through two passes on third and one and fourth and one and didn't get it and gave Tulane a short field, I, you know, you just kind of felt like the damn – felt like the dam was about to break and and ultimately that's what happened yeah and I was worried going into this game not only because everybody I know in the media and around me was picking ECU to win which is always a bad sign it's the kiss of death we like to call it but uh ECU like you said such a young team they've kind of strung they had strung together three good performances in a row uh at least in terms of you know should beating USF probably should have beat Navy with their quarterback and then also we know what happened uh, at Tulsa. I think it's hard, Brett, for a young team to continue to play at that level consistently, having not really gone through this before. Do you think that played a role in that uh, in what happened against Tulane? I don't think there's any question about it, and I, I think the team has done a really good job. You know, going back to the adversity in the Navy game, and and. Um, <laughs> you know, you win at South Florida and then you face that adversity in the Navy game and, and you feel like you play well enough to win. And if you're starting quarterbacks there, you probably do win the game. And then to get robbed, I mean, it, it is what it is. And we've, we've beaten that dead horse with the Tulsa game for a couple of weeks now. You know, I, I just think you finally saw a team that was frustrated and they let um, not reaping the benefits of those rewards get to them a little bit. And it probably wasn't last Saturday. It probably happened throughout the week uh, in preparation for the Tulane games. So um, I don't think there's any question that I don't. I don't mean this in a bad way when I say this, but lack of maturation, lack of maturity—not in the sense that the kids are bad kids or anything. It's just the fact that at some point you want to see tangible benefits of your reward through winning a football game, and and they had not done that despite playing fairly well. Um, a couple of instances early in the year right before that. And, and last week, they just didn't play well. Uh, we we talked with the coordinators last night as we, as we record this on Wednesday, uh, Donnie Kirkpatrick and Blake Harrell, offensive and defensive coordinator. And uh, coming out of the game, Mike Houston said that he wanted Blake Harrell to take a good look at the film because he felt Tulane was as prepared as anybody for the defense. Uh, and, I, and I asked Blake, I said – you know, what did you learn as a defensive staff after watching that film? And, and to his credit, he didn't really answer the question. You know, he said, you know, they got to learn to forget the next play and all that. But I want to ask you as a coach, Brett, when you saw that on film, is there anything ECU staff can take away uh, 
to adjust to maybe better prepare for how Tulane kind of handled things on, on Saturday? Well, I think this is the first thing when you come in as a, as a new coordinator and, and like, like Blake's done this year is you get so consumed the first seven or eight months of implementing your stuff and your system. And then after two or three games, you find out what your kids can do and they do it. And you have to be real careful not to become too predictable in a sense of when you're bringing pressure, or I like this particular pressure against this formation or, or whatever. And that's where your analyst and your graduate assistants come in, um, particularly toward the end of a work week, uh, you know, how it would work out. So let's say, you know, let's go back in 2008, Tim Carter and I were, were kind of the analyst slash GA role. Uh, if we were getting ready to play Carolina, that following Friday, that work for care or that following Saturday, that work for Carolina was already done by us. But if we played Southern Miss the following week, uh, we would spend Sunday, Monday and Tuesday kind of making sure we can help draw the cards, help any of the breakdown with the, getting the scouting reports done for the coaches as they prepare to Carolina. But by Wednesday, a GA and an analyst is starting to work on self-scout trying to work on kind of the preliminary actions for the Southern Miss game that's 10 days away or whatever the case may be. So those analysts and those GAs got to work on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of providing, hey, we've done this, we've made this call against this formation too many times. Now, you actually used to get a lot more time to do that. Now, it was only two of us, so I'm not feeling sorry for these guys that have got four and five guys working on it. But, you know, when the coaches were out on the road on Fridays, the non-coordinators, if you will, you know, you could really start diving into that team um, that you were playing the following week. Um, so, you know, Blake's in a, in a situation where, you know, you, you try not that first year to get into game planning as much. You want to do what your kids can do. But as a result, you become a little bit more predictable um, because this is what you are. You know, this is what you've shown on film. I, that, that's not unusual. If, if Coach Houston told him that, you know, that, that tells me that this week they were heavy on Sunday talking about their self-scout, um, you know, and sometimes it's good to put another set of eyes. And that's re really when you want to do it is during an open week. But, you know, COVID being what it is, the open weeks are – they're either here when you don't want them here or this is just such a confined schedule. So, you know, I, I think I, I understand where that came from. And, and Tulane obviously had some, yeah, I think the first touchdown was a total bust in coverage, but they also had a route um, that was a specific beater to a coverage that I don't think East Carolina plays a lot. Um, which is kind of like an inverted halves, not to get too technical with it. So they, they knew when the, when that type of pressure, that type of coverage was coming uh, because it's not a base coverage for what East Carolina did. So even if they wouldn't have busted the coverage, uh, you would have had a chance for a big play regardless. So, you know, that's probably what Coach Houston's referring to in a sense that, you know, Will Hall, the, the two-lane offensive coordinator, had a beat and uh, East Carolina's really got to dive into some self-scout this week to make sure that the next opponent doesn't have that. Well, let's get into that next opponent briefly, Brett. Uh, Cincinnati, man, what a what a tough game for East Carolina to have to bounce back and try to prepare for. Um, we'll kind of talk about expectations for this game a little later, but 
just looking at some of the raw numbers, man, uh, Cincinnati, they're giving up 11.7 points per game, and that's with giving up 20 to, I think, Austin P. Outside of that, they haven't given up more than 13 to any FBS team. Uh, they're scoring 40 points a game. Uh, on the ground, they're averaging 239 yards a game. Offensively, they're giving up only 96. They're giving up only 2.8 yards per rush. They're running as a team for 6.1 yards per carry. Uh, man, their third down conversions, they're converting over 50% offensively, and then they're giving up 30% defensively. So, I mean, across the board, their numbers are winning numbers. And uh, I don't know if you've seen Cincinnati play much this year, Brett, but just your initial impressions on, on this matchup. Yeah, you know, I went back and watched a couple of condensed games in preparation for this, I guess, over the course of the last couple of days. I, they're not the typical kind of BCS buster. I think when you look historically at the, at the, uh, I guess, the Utahs of the world or the UCFs of the world a couple of years ago, these these guys remind you more of like, like Boise did or, uh, you know, even our teams in the late 2000s, I mean, the, the, the best players on their football team are on their defense. And I'm not disparaging, you know, I mean, they're pretty good offensively. I don't mean it like that. But, I mean, that's a legit power five defensive football team. And, and I, I don't know if they're four or five years into, into Vickle's tenure or not, but uh, four. So he's kind of built that roster in his image, tough nose Ohio kids. They've done a good job and then they've outsourced where they can get their speed from down in Florida, Georgia. Um, you know, in that that's not unusual, but they've obviously done a great job of developing players because uh, his first year they were not very good. I think they won five or six games and then they popped up and they've won pretty much they're heading for their third straight double digit winning season. Uh, and I, I like what he's done with his roster. They're very multiple on defense, do a lot of really good things. But, yeah, I think when you look at it, it's a true sign of – now, he didn't inherit a mess either. I'm trying to remember who he followed there. Tuberville? Uh, but since, yeah, Tommy Tuberville. But, you know, Cincinnati's been good now going on 15 years, whether or not it was Mark Antonio or Brian Kelly and, and Butch Jones. So, they've – They've been pretty good now for going on two decades. So, I mean, I don't think he inherited a roster in flux, uh, but what he's done is he's obviously recruited well, but they've developed a a team that, you know, they're not just good for an American conference team. That team would contend. You know, I'm not so sure, like, if you didn't throw Cincinnati in the Big Ten West that they wouldn't compete with Wisconsin and Iowa, you know, and those other legitimate teams. Are, are they Ohio State? Are they – Penn State, Michigan, both stink this year, but typically, um, you know, I, I don't know if they're at that level, but I mean, this is a legitimate top 20 roster and legitimate top 20 team that happens to be ranked in the top five, top 10 in, in every major poll because you know, nobody's proven they can beat them. Yeah, that's the thing. And Blake Harrell was talking about it uh, yesterday. They'll go some 12, 13 personnel a lot as far as showing two and three tight ends, but you just. You just don't see in the American, and they even they've even had four tight ends in the game at one point this year, uh, which and two of two of those guys are really really good. Yeah, so you know, they're not they, they catch my eye. Yep. So I mean, they look like NFL tight ends. They had they had one last year who got drafted, I believe. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they're building it that type of way to where it's almost like a Big Ten style of a roster and play. Uh, Brett, I guess the good thing is ECU when they've put up a stinker this year in terms of performance they've bounced back the next week uh, do you expect a refocused 
Pirate team, although they could probably play their best game of the year and still lose by double digits on Friday. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is at this point. I mean, if I don't – while there have been signs of plenty of hope over the course of the last six weeks or six games, I, you know, I would say four of those, there have been plenty of positives that you can build on. Friday night, you know, just like two Friday nights against Tulsa – what are the what are the reasonable expectations for the fan base? What is the reason why the players and the coaches are going there trying to win a game? I don't mean it like that, and they absolutely should. Um, but what you want to see is that renew that fighting spirit, make some plays, and uh, you know, to me, you know, you liken it to a boxing match when you're when you're facing somebody that's a little bit better than you. Can you make it a twelve round fight? And that, to me, is what East Carolina's got to do. You got to go in, and Cincinnati's not built the way UCF is in a sense that, holy crap, we turn it over and they're going to score thirty-five points in a five-minute stretch. And that's not who they are. So you know, by nature, as long as if you don't get physically overwhelmed in the first half of the football game, and you make a couple of plays, and you look up and it's seventeen to fourteen or even 21 to 10, um, you know, you put them in a position where they can't turn the football over in the second half or they can't make a monumental special teams mistake. And, you know, I I don't think that's how people are going to beat them because they're such a quality fundamental football team, but that's what you have to hope for. You have to hope that you don't get physically overwhelmed and then they make some uncharacteristic mistakes. And if that happens, then, you know, you never know, but I, and to me, this whole season uh, is about growth. It's about program growth, and it's about player development. And, and East Carolina's shown plenty. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody's expecting what, what we have four games left, four or five games left, where they're going to go out and run off and win four games by three touchdowns apiece. Uh, I guess if I take the Tulsa screw job aside – you want to go out and you want to see that spirit that they played with uh, on both sides of the football at the line of scrimmage, especially uh, the way they did at Tulsa a couple Friday nights ago. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you look at the season, and again, I, I hate doing this because you are what your record says you are, but you know, if you have Holt Nailers and you win the Tulsa game, you're 3-3 three and three right now instead of 1-5. and five. The world is not ending. We're kind of just saying, hey, this young team doesn't know how to consistently play well which what we saw against Tulane, I think we, we kind of saw that. Uh, it's just that right now, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the wins just aren't there, which make it frustrating for ECU fans. But uh, we'll see Friday night what happens. Uh, last thing before we get to questions from the fans, Brett, last year's game, you look at Cincinnati, uh, ECU, I mean, they took it to them offensively. Their, their most points allowed, uh, 43. They gave up more than 600 yards of offense, 535 passing yards. You know, do you take anything from that game if you're ECU outside of some confidence? Do you try to repeat that formula? What's your thoughts on last year's success, maybe playing any type of role Friday? Well, I can tell you Cincinnati's taking something out of it. And, I, I mean, I listened to, to or might have read Fickle's comments, and that is straight out of the Urban Meyer playbook, the handbook of, of – how he tries to motivate a team. And, and he worked for two pretty good guys. Now, I mean, when he got done, play, he played for John Cooper at Ohio State, and then he, would, he coordinated and worked for Jim Trestle and then coached for Urban Meyer for whatever it was, five or six years. And that, 
I, some people say, okay, we're playing a faceless opponent. We're doing this. We're doing that. That's not the Urban Meyer kind of way. You know, like he talks openly about the Michigan game is more important than the Purdue game. You know, and you don't hear coaches say that a lot. Um, and I think when Fickle says the revenge tour, I think it kind of gets thought, okay, Memphis beat them twice last year and won the conference. Um, you know, to me, this is about, you know, we're – fighting for we're trying to take this program from a threshold of 10 wins to the 12 win AAC power power five or non-power five representative in the um new year six and he's playing with that kind of chip on their shoulder so he's his kids know that um whatever the numbers were and, and Johnson going crazy uh, that's not acceptable to the standard that he's trying to set. So it, he's taking something out of it a hundred percent. I still think East Carolina is in a position from a program development standpoint where you are playing the faceless opponent. You are, you are holistically looking at things this season as what do we have to do to get better? And it's the fighting spirit. It's the physicality. Um, you know, it's, setting forth the tempo and the culture of, of what you expect. So I, I don't know how much Mike Houston's even talking about Cincinnati to his team, other than this is what they run. These are their tendencies. Uh, you know, he's not going to make, if you make, when you're not very good, which is where East Carolina is, I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but football team and at its best, it's a three and three football team. So you're not, you're average at best, you're bad at worst don't make it any more than it is because if you make it life and death, you're going to be dead. And then you're going, then you're going to lose the next week because of how you play this week. I think East Carolina is just about, let's just go forth and let's see what we can do better this period. What can we do better on this rep? Cincinnati's not there. Cincinnati's a 10, 11 win football team. They're fighting to a standard of was that rep at a national top five level. Um, so, you know, I mean, you've just got two play, you got two teams on Friday night that are going to take a national stage. They're just at different places as a program. All right. That is the voice of Brett Hickman. Let's get into some of these questions here on the Hoist of Colors message board. I uh, got a few from Berg Pirate. He asked number one, and we got a few questions about this. Uh, as we do every week, the Holton Aylers run game, Brett, which we love talking about, but uh, he wants to know how many designed slash improvised runs do we see from Holton this week? I mean, I again, we're not in the game plan room. We can't estimate that. But uh, do you expect to see an uptick in that at all this week? I don't. Um, now, I mean, granted, when I finally moved from defense to offense in 2013, by the time 2016 rolled around, I was the run game coordinator at Gardner-Webb, and our quarterback Tyrell Maxwell actually led the country for, for – quarterback rushing yardage. So, I mean, I'm a big proponent of the quarterback run. I've been open in saying that, um, you know, Tyrell actually got into uh, camp with the Chargers as a safety. So, I mean, you're talking about an elite athlete that wasn't a great thrower of the football, but, you know, he was a thousand yard rusher two years in a row. So I believe in it um, for the, for the, to, to simplify this as much as I can, if I've got five linemen and, a tight end, that's six men. If they give me a seven-man box, I can't hand the ball off to the running back and block seven people with six. You know, I can either read one defender 
with a quarterback read scheme. And if I read it right, then I get, I get, I equate numbers or I can use the back as a blocker and quarterback run. And now I've got seven on seven. Um, you know, what, what coach K and, and the offensive staff has leaned on this year is if they're going to give a seven and eight man box, we're going to try and win the one-on-one um, game on the edge, which, um, you know, I, I don't want to disparage a kid. Johnson just has not been that number one guy that has made people pay uh, in that capacity this year. I'm not sure Pro is that guy. I think um, when I talk about the route tree that he seems to be really good at, it's more on design passing plays as opposed to when you get into the RPO game, the run pass option game. You have to win right now and you have to win aggressively, whether or not it's jump balls or quick slants and quick post. Um, and that that's how East Carolina has favored getting the ball out and trying to equate numbers as the throw game. And it's been fine. It's been good, you know, but I think you remember in that uh, both the South Florida and the Navy game, whether or not it was Holton or, or Garcia tucking it and running in the quarterback trawl game, it, it really opened things up for Raji a little bit more too. Um, yeah, what what people are starting to do after East Carolina showed that, and Holton alluded to it last week, is you're you're starting to get what I call the gap exchange stunt, where they'll where they'll chase the back down, and the backer will come back over the top to to play the quarterback. You know, so you know, that's really the beater and the answer to the quarterback read game. But there is no answer for just design quarterback runs if you can execute a bunch of one on ones. Um, you know, and you've seen a little bit more quarterback power um, where you're using the back as a blocker and, and things of that nature. But I saw enough in that Navy game to realize, to understand why they are protecting Holton a little bit in a sense that just from a processing standpoint, Garcia's not ready. He, he cannot go back there and deliver from the pocket because um, I don't think Navy's very good on defense. I'm going to be honest. And the team only – and the Pirates only manufactured, I guess, 23 points that game. So, um, with that being said, I mean, you're one in five. I understand the, the fans clamoring for it. Heck, dude, I was beating the drum early in the season more than anybody on that. Um, you know, in, in fairness to, to not being in the room and understanding that. But uh, – you are what you are and you're one in five. So why not try something different? Um, because what's the difference if he, if he does get banged up and you have to go to a backup quarterback, you know, is there much difference between going one and nine or two and eight or three and seven? I mean, it is what it is. We're not, we're not in conference championship chasing mode right now. So, you know, let, let's give the football team the best chance to win, which might be a little bit more quarterback run, but yeah, I still don't think they're they're comfortable enough with what they've got in the backup to just unleash Holton in, in, in a 15-20 carry per game fury, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I, I did an article on this this morning, kind of looked at the numbers, and only 17 design runs for Holton this year in terms of non-scrambles through five games. Last year he had 74 in 12 games. So, I mean, they are – they're pacing well. Which confuses well you because I, I, you would think they feel a little bit better. Number one, they've established a tailback, so that yeah. has something to do with it. I mean, Harris is you. You don't want to, you don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. 
you know, Raji's still, I mean, he's a guy who needs 15 to 20 carry game, you know, in my, in my opinion. Um, but it's not like they would have felt great. Hey, they probably were in a worse backup quarterback situation last year. So um, I don't mean to use this term any, any negative light or anything, but that's kind of a convenient excuse too. You know, I don't, I don't really know how much the backup quarterback factors into it as much as they're just trying to develop some other schemes. Now this team is actually more diverse in the running back run game than they were a year ago. You know, they're, they're implementing more, um, Honestly, some stuff. I, I think Shank's got a lot to do with this, the, the pin pull sweep and uh, counter tray as opposed to just being really a zone team. This, this They're running six or seven concepts in the run game this year as opposed to just really power counter inside zone, which is where they were at last year. All right, let's move on to uh, – we got another question about the quarterback run game, but I think we kind of address it there uh, pretty deep. So – uh, Berg Pyre asks, can our wide receivers exploit Cincy's DBs if we can block their front four? Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. Cincinnati has a true freshman, or last year was a true freshman All-American corner in Ahmad Gardner, who looks like he has taken another step forward this year. Uh, that side of the field may be shut down. Now, last year it was the guy named Kobe Bryant who C.J. Johnson just torched. Uh, not the same spelling as uh, the Mamba. But uh, similar spelling, and um, he was the guy that C.J. Johnson torched. I'm expecting if Cincinnati uh, tries to take away C.J., that they put Gardner more on C.J. this time. And maybe on Prol or Omotosho's side, you have uh, Bryant. Because it's the same corners back. They also have their top safety, James Wiggins, back, who didn't play last year. So, I'm you know, I don't think you can exploit them. Obviously, Brett, you have to handle their rush, or else you're not going to have a shot. But – uh, this is just a really good defense all the way around. Yeah, I mean, there's two trains of thought of when you talk about a dominant corner versus a dominant receiver, and there's the train of thought where I'm just going to put my best on your best and I'm going to do what I do. Um, and Or you have kind of the Bill Belichick school thought where I'm going to put my dominant guy on your number two guy and then I'm going to play some games and double team the other side of the football. So essentially I've taken your number two out of the game and I've now schemed your number one out of the game, which is why you see the Patriots. They, they go a lot to nickel defense because the, the vulnerability to I'm going to take one guy out of the game with my best corner and I'm going to double the, your best guy is they have to have a great nickel who can cover the slot. I don't think Cincinnati takes that approach because Tyler Sneed's kind of gotten going lately over the middle of the field. I think Cincinnati's going to put the, the All-American on Johnson. Uh, I would because he's shown nothing over the course of this season to do what he did at certain points last year. His targets are down. His drops are up. Um you know, these are this is raw data. I'm I'm not getting after the kid anything, but he has not taken the leap uh, that I think a lot of of fans expected to do. Um, so I, I think, or heck, they might even just say we're going to play left and right. We're going to put one on this side. And we're going to put one on another. Now, what does Donnie do? Does Donnie try and move CJ in the slot a little bit? Uh, get him matched up on a safety like he did against South Florida. He's done that a little bit more. Um, lately so yeah it'll be big but 
just Cincinnati is is I've been comparably comparatively lucky at the high school level and that we've had a, we've got a really good high school corner and our number two is a really good player so um you know when you do that it just really allows you to get really aggressive in the box and play games with the other nine defenders you know they're they do not fear East Carolina I mean they're gonna play man coverage on the outside so can can Snead or somebody else take advantage in the slot um and probably more importantly can these because they didn't last week can East Carolina hold up in pass protection um because the longer I mean once again common sense the longer that somebody has to cover you the easier it's going to be to get open so that that to me is the key on the offensive side of the football this week because I just don't think East Carolina is going to line up and run for 200 yards on Friday night yeah, they got a 6'5", 260-pound edge rusher who uh, is a beast, and that's going to be a tough matchup for uh, ECU's offensive tackles, uh, which worries me. Uh, last question for Berg Pirate. Where would this win rank in school history if ECU pulls off the upset? I mean, it, it would have to be top. I mean, granted, you don't have a lot on the line, but just I think this would be a program-defining win in terms of the Mike Houston there. I mean, it would have to be top 10, top 5 all time. Have you ever beat a top – 10 team on the road in recent memory? Uh, I don't know. I think most, when I think of the great wins in East Carolina history, it's been the great East Carolina teams that right. won it, whether or, not, whether or not it was the Peach Bowl. I mean, that was an 11 win team, or the Miami win in Raleigh in 99, or, you know, us beating Virginia Tech in West Virginia in 2008, or, or you know, whatever the case may be. I just, when East Carolina's been bad, we've been really bad. We hadn't beat anybody. So, um, uh, I don't know if it's a circumstance or a situation. I, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of one in my lifetime that has come up kind of out of nowhere. And yeah. I just, I can't think of one. And, and this would be, it would be one of the weird <laughs> top 10 wins, if you will. I mean, but that being said, I, I, Cincinnati's got a little bit of that Carolina syndrome too. Now, I mean, I think they're really good, but, I don't think anybody looked at North Carolina two weeks ago, like with them on defense, and was like, eh, that, that ain't a top five football team. I think Cincinnati's really good, but I think they're more like the 17th or 18th best team in the country. Like, would anybody line them up against Wisconsin and say, you're going to beat that team? I don't think they beat a betting favorite. Well, I don't know, because Wisconsin's got half their team in COVID. That was probably a in quarantine, that's probably a bad example, but I don't think anybody would sit there and say in a normal year, this Cincinnati team would be, you know, throw in random top 25, Miami, you know, throw in somebody like that. I mean, I don't think they're better than them. So it is what it is. Uh, it would be a strange, it would be a, it would be a very sweet win, you know, in the development of the program, but in the end, under Houston, they're going to have to win. And I thought the Tulsa game kind of could have been that, the game that kind of this is where it happened, and it's going to happen now. Uh, but this one would be out of left field for sure. Uh, ECU Pirates backwards, he asked, Brett, Cincinnati comes out and is beating our five offensive linemen with only a four-man rush. What plays are you calling to try to slow down those four D linemen and make them think about where the ball is going? <laughs> Well, I mean, the the one thing is to, to stop a pass rush, 
you know, running the football really helps. Uh, the, the quarterback read run game really slows it down where you don't block one of those guys. You, you read them. Um, that being said, on third and eight, when you get into obvious passing situations, there there's a couple of things. Number one, you can go into a six or seven man max protection, which means you're going to have less people in coverage. So now are you giving those corners that we've already talked about are really good? Are you giving them more help? Um, you got even a more pro- you got more problems. So I mean everybody thinks that just because you can protect with seven, well now you got less people out on the route. Um, so that's an issue. The other thing you can do is what you call chip the backs, where you know, where the back might be responsible for running a route on the outside, say a flare route or a or a shoot route or whatnot. But as that defensive end, if that defensive end goes in an outside rush, you throw your shoulder into his hip as you pass to really help your offensive lineman out a little bit. But, you know, Fickle's not a dumb guy either. Like if you're in a true six man protection scheme and what you call a scat scheme where the back is, the back is in pass protection unless nobody comes. Okay. In most pass protections. And if they know that you're chipping your defensive ends, when your blitzer didn't come, well, what they're going to do, they're going to start bringing interior blitzes, which forces the back to come up, which guarantees that you get a one-on-one on the outside. So, you know, defenses can scheme around that as much as usual. The easiest thing to do on third and long is not to get into third and long. There is no play for third and 11 guys. There is none. You can screen, you can draw, you can throw jump balls, you can do whatever, but uh, to win a, that that's why like then that's why these air raid got like the original old school air raid of Mike Leach the idea was to get splits so wide that um, you know essentially by nature of those splits these you could lose slow at offensive tackle and the quarterback still had time to get rid of it but what you give up when if me and you are three feet apart, me and you can put our feet together and we can create some type of combo block and, and it's easier to run the football. If me and you were six feet apart, we can't combo block anymore. So, you know, it's a give and take. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't want a power run game with six foot splits with the offensive lineman. And the closer that you split to make it easier for a power inside run game, the harder it is on offensive tackles because now the defensive ends are closer to the football. And yeah, I mean, some people actually will do this. They'll expand their splits a little bit on definite passing situations, but that's a tale that coaches get on film too. You know, we have a sit not now as much because high school guys, I mean, they give it away with their stance anyway. But when I was a college coordinator, you know, if I thought the tackle split himself out a little bit wider, our defensive end would just start yelling bird, 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 and the ball's coming in the air. So you became pretty – they you became predictable um, if you wanted to change your splits up to, to try and slow down pass rushers or whatever the case may be. Um, I know that's a long-winded answer, but there's it's just give and take and give and take and give and take. The, the best thing to do on third and eight is not to be in third and eight. Yeah, I mean, get yourself in third and manageable where – that defensive end has to play. He's got to be thinking, okay, what's my run technique? What's my pass technique? And then he reacts as opposed to on third and eight, 
third and 10, screw that. I'm in a jet call. I'm going to widen out. I'm going to beat this guy with speed. And if they run the draw, whatever. Um, so, you know, long-winded answer. There's a reason they say if you get pressure with four men, uh, you're probably going to win the game. I mean, that, yeah, it's I mean, that uh, simple, really. If you can't protect against four-man rush, you're, you're screwed. I've got two championship rings behind me that prove that. I mean, like, like I mean, it, it ain't that hard. Like, calling the defense, I mean, Coach Hudson will tell you this. Like, he got a lot of credit for when he was here in 2000-whatever, the late 2000s. But, I mean, C.J., Linville, Jay, Zach Slate, Scotty Robinson. I mean, you guys go eat. We'll cover the rest of them. But, I mean, that team never blitzed. You know, we would we would fire zone, meaning we would bring maybe a second-level guy and drop in the end. But, you know, that, that team was not a blitzing team because you just – you didn't have to get creative. You, you got – you were able to be more creative on the back end of the defense. But, like, I, I wouldn't have called us exotic at all. We just – you know, we had pros up there rushing the passer, and that's what – Cincinnati's got one. They might have two, you know, and I, I think their interior kids are pretty good too. All right, last question uh, for the podcast. Pirates are us. Uh, he's got a good question, and we kind of talked about this earlier but didn't dive too far into it. He uh, he wants to know what the pre-snap movement Coach Harrell uses. How do you, how do you disguise that better? Uh, Tulane, you know, their coach kind of talked about how they had some tells on some stuff. They got some pre-snap reads with a hard count. Um, so... We'll start there. He's got a second part of the question, um, but we kind of talked about that earlier. So, can you disguise the the uh, the pre stat movement with uh, what Coach Harrell's doing? Yeah, again, that that's just give and take. You know, for instance, when I'm co- when I'm in Blake's situation, I'm looking for I'm looking for making my move calls the stemming of the defensive line based on a tail of the quarterback's cadence. So it might be as simple as, okay, the quarterback's in the shotgun when he goes to his towel and he wipes his towel and then his hands come up, you know, that's when I'm going to shift the defense. Well, they might have picked up that you're moving when the quarterback's hands go up. So they're going to give you a either a hard count or we're going to go on two during that time period to kind of give the quarterback a chance to see some safety rotation or whatnot. Um, you know, the biggest variance is is what you don't want. You have to be aligned on defense that when the ball comes, when the ball is snapped, that you're in a position to succeed. Because if you hold it too long and you're not close enough, it doesn't matter what blitz, it doesn't matter what pressure, it doesn't matter what coverage you're in. If you can't get to where you got to be when that ball snapped, you know, it's better to be caught in a disguise than – not be close enough to execute to performance align is what I call it. Align yourself to execute. That being said, most blitzes and most stunts are predicated on the fact that they look like something different. Um, you know, you're, you're, that's just the chess match of what, you know, like I said earlier, the GAs are looking for stuff 10 days before the game of, okay, this is the quarterback's cadence. This is when they, this is when we really need to try and shift. This is what we want to do. Um, so, you know, it's give and take, you know, one thing Blake does a ton of is, is not just disguising blitzes, but they move the front and, and I, I would be interested to see a breakdown at, you know, maybe go up there and watch cutups for a day of how many times they line up in a specific defensive front 
and they move to something else before the ball is snapped. I would venture to say it's over 50% of the time, but it's easier to do that because a defensive lineman might be moving three feet. But when I'm playing free safety and I've got to move down and I'm blitzing, I've got to start showing it a little bit earlier because now I've got to move 30 feet as opposed to three feet. So it's a little bit easier to hold stunts with the front than it is to hold coverages in the secondary just by nature of you having to move farther. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's something that once again, that goes back to self-scouting of, of something that, that they're going to have to take a look at. But I think, I think this team does a pretty good job of it. I'm going to be honest. I mean, in my opinion, the first year in a system. Um, and I, I don't know how much Blake, like some people will call the disguise as a part of the call or they just know, okay, let's say the blitz call is, I don't know, free fire, free safety fire. Do I show quarters week with the free safety? Do I show cover four on the weeks? side of the field when I'm running free fire or do I just have the autonomy to run around and then hit it when I'm supposed to go and some people might say show free fire meaning go ahead and show that you're coming or some people might say hold you know I mean it just that I don't know what they're doing until I haven't dove into film long enough to kind of see what's going on but that's a very very you, you can't make that answer easy I guess if you if you will it's just very very complicated yeah, and they did some good stuff against Tulsa where Tulsa would do some check with me based off what they were uh, – the look they were getting, but then EC would audible to something different or at least show yeah. something different. So I, I wonder, And the, ne- the, yeah. the, next whole, the next change to that is what I call a check-check play. Right. Meaning on offense, you might – you know, we, we actually at, at Gardner-Webb, we called this buffalo where we would say, said, hit, hit. And then when you're looking towards the sideline, if we know they're a check with me defense like East Carolina is, if we called Buffalo, we were going to run this play no matter what. So it would be said, hit, hit. Everybody looked to the sideline for about a split second, and then we're really going on three. Right. So while the defense is looking, you're running some hard tempo play, um, you know, so that you alleviate some check with me defenses by kind of showing check with me, but then hitting them with a fastball. So, you know, I didn't notice Tulane doing that, but that's kind of the next thing that keeps you from, okay, and East Carolina actually forced a couple of timeouts in that Tulsa game by doing that. But, you know, they might look over there and Blake might be playing like a – Blake looks like he's playing a drum, which means play what we had called, or he might change it altogether. So, you know, that's the chess match that has happened in the last 10 or 15 years of college football as it has – matriculated from a a huddle game like the NFL really still is to, you know, 90% of the teams now in college football are no huddle. So, you know, offenses have to constantly be changing. Like to me, it's harder to go against somebody who changes up tempo than it is somebody who just goes fast all the time. And that that's something I think he's done a really good job of it this year, but, you know, they, they they get paid on the other side of the, whoever else is coaching the the opponent this week too. So, you know, they, they got, there's good coaches everywhere, and, and that's the chess match that everybody's working with every week. That is the voice of Brett Hickman. Brett, we appreciate the time on this week's uh, podcast, man. And 
I know you've been busy lately, so really appreciate you taking some time to hop on the show and and break down Tulane, look ahead to Cincinnati, and hopefully the Pirates can uh, can find a way to steal one of those uh, weird top ten wins on Friday. We'll see. You know, the, we'll see. That's just all I can say. I guess if they go keep score, we ought to try and win. Exactly. Well, that is Brett Hickman, the head coach at West Brunswick High School. I'm Stephen Igo. That'll do it for the Hoist the Colors podcast. We'll be back with you after the game to break it all down. Thanks for listening.